Audi. As the presenter of one of the UK's most important news programmes, BBC Two's Newsnight, journalist Kirsty Walk is famed for her no-nonsense attitude. She's arranged her working life around her steadfast love of Scotland, was inspired by the Isle of Arran to write novels, accidentally stumbled into the fall of the Iron Curtain on honeymoon, and feels her spirit soar when speeding along in a convertible in New York State. She's a passionate advocate for working smarter and feels that overnight trains are the most effective use of travelling time. I'm delighted to welcome Kirsty Walk to the Big Travel Podcast. One of the most interesting things about you and your travel is the fact that you've chosen to work in London yet still base yourself in Scotland, which must be hard work but beautiful in many ways. It was a very big decision. Um, I'd been asked to move to London, the various jobs that would have meant me having to live in London, and I said no, because I do love London, but I wanted to live in Scotland, that is my home. And also, I just truly believe that um, not all presenters on the BBC who work in networks should be living in London. And it's not that I've got a better perspective, it's just I've got a different one. So that has meant, I was working out actually, I've been commuting in the sleeper for 25 years. The sleeper sounds amazing. I've done sleepers, I haven't done that sleeper. Describe to me, paint a picture of life on the sleeper, an evening on the sleeper. For me, it's a case of uh, running out of the Newsnight studio, jumping in a car and getting to Euston. Actually, probably now because we're at New BH, which is just beside Oxford Circus and not out in the West uh, doing television, doing Newsnight. It means I kind of get there 20 minutes before jump on and they kind of know me because, as I say, I've been doing it for so long. And I'll probably sit down with you know, maybe a paper from the next morning or a book and have a whiskey, you know, always an hour in Malta always, uh, before I go to bed. Or if the sleeper's restaurant car is incredibly busy and noisy, I'll just take the whiskey to bed. And I sleep really, really well. There's a trick to sleeping on the sleeper. And the trick to sleeping on the sleeper is that you don't sleep over the wheels. So you should try and get, you know, between 9 and 15 as your cabin. And so I go to bed and I actually quite like the rocking. I'm so used to it now that actually I probably sleep all night, and um, I've wakened by a cup of tea at about seven o'clock. So it's like, I love it because it's such a time efficient way of traveling. And when the children were little, and they're now 26, 27, but when the children were little, it meant that I could do the show, get on the train, stop for bread in the morning and be home just as they were getting up. And so that really mattered a lot to me. It's a very efficient way of travelling, isn't it, when you're sleeping? Yeah, you, is I don't it? think you can do the plane like that. So uh, no, you can't plane. do the plane. Unfortunately, there is no late plane. And often I would fly down. I fly down less now because it's such a hassle um, with security and delays and everything else. That I often actually take the train down. So I find myself going uh, north to south on the morning on the Virgin 840 or whatever it is, and then uh, south to north at night. And what does it look like? Does it look as glamorous as, say, the Orient Express or the vision that we've got of, say, 1920s and 30s? It certainly trains? does not, but it will do because the new trains, the new sleeper carriages are coming in at the end of October and that's going to make a massive difference. They're going to be en suite for a start. Yes! No more getting out in the middle of the night, padding along and worrying whether you're going to hit a stranger in the way With along the corridor. Oh, no, horrible. And they're going to be much more modern and they're not going to have carpets up the walls, they're not going to have carpets on the floors, it's going to be cleaner. 
as I'm looking forward to that, my only concern, of course, is whether they're going to hike the prices. Yes, I suppose that that's always the case. But don't they always hike the prices every every opportunity, every yeah. every third yeah. Saturday? Well, the, 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 dan- the danger is they hike the prices so much that people just don't travel. Yeah, that's true. And have you met, do you meet some interesting people? I read a story about you sort of fraternising with politicians and various interesting characters on the way up. It used to be that there was a late night vote at Westminster on a Thursday night. And so every day would be on the sleeper. Uh, because they couldn't catch a flight, so the 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 political mingling uh, across party was you know intense, and there was always good uh, stories in the sleeper. But the kind of rule was the stories in the sleeper stay in the sleeper, so that you know you could have politicians of different stripes talking to each other as they obviously do in real life. That was always great fun. And there's a story that I wasn't on at the time. The late Donald Dewar uh, tells a story uh, or told a story, I should say, of when you know it was terrible, terrible snow and they were stuck in the sleeper for 23 hours. Can you imagine? And um, everybody was talking to each other except the late Robin Cook, who was sitting working in a corner, much to uh, Donald's disdain. For 23 hours. Exactly. I can imagine that's a sort of Robin Cook thing yes. to do. The longest sleeper I ever took was, it's actually, it was six days, but not the whole, we, we stopped in various countries, but from Istanbul to back to London. Amazing, on the slow train. Yes, yeah. So the first journey, I think, was something like 48 hours, and that was Istanbul to Budapest. And there was no dining car and no food, no trolley or anything. So you had to pack a picnic and all your food and all, all your drink to take with you. And it was very, this yeah. is only, you know, seven years ago, but it That's was very, it was quite rough. Well, I think one of my most eventful uh, train journeys was Alan, my husband and I were married uh, in 1989. And we were traveling uh, between Prague and Hungary and uh, Budapest. And of course, the electric fence between at the Austrian-Hungarian um, border had been switched off and people were going backwards and forwards. And then there was this great rush to get out, which of course was the fall of the Iron Curtain. And I remember being on a late night train, an overnight train, uh, being put off by guards and our papers checked because they, they knew people were actually escaping out. And so that was a very eventful way of having my honeymoon. What did you see? Did you see people? Yeah, we saw people being interrogated uh, and because they just wanted to get out. I mean, and they did. I mean, I don't actually think anyone was kept off the train. I think by then, which was September, people were realising that, you know, the game was up and, you know, the the wall would eventually come down and everything was going to change. But it was a very exciting time to be there. Great way to spend the honeymoon as well. Yeah, exactly. Most people go to the Maldives or something. (laughs) No, actually, I seem to remember we went to Paris first for a football match and then we travelled east. Actually, when I did that train journey, they were quite, the the guards woke you up in the middle of the night crossing, I forget which border we were crossing. And we're not really used to borders like that. we're not. We're not used to it at all. and, And Spain and, you know, like our closer borders. But there is something inherently wonderful about train travel, but also something very poignant. So every every time I get off the sleeper in Glasgow, it comes into Platform 1, and you look at Platform 1, and you see the plaque up at Platform 1, which says, from this platform, many men and women went away to fight in the war and never came back, and we must remember them. And you remember that, you know, train travel was so phenomenal during both the First World War and the Second World War. I was thinking that on the way here. I don't know why I was thinking it. It was I was pa- on a packed tube, and I was just having a totally out-of-the-blue thought about people being transported on trains. Yeah. And that's funny that you should mention yeah. that, but it is... It Completely. is quite emotional, and also the whole coming home thing. You know, yeah, coming home and leaving. Up. Coming home and leaving. I mean, that's exactly what I, re- I mean. You know, and I, I love the idea. You know, things like you know, by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept, and all, all, all the idea of the epic nature of train travel. And that, and that's why it's so disappointing that you know we seem to be in such a mess with train travel. It is so disappointing. It's and so all those disappointing. Tiny, is it the Beecham report that the Beecham cuts the were Beecham just dreadful? And, and and in fact, the one Beecham cut that's been reversed, which I think is absolutely fantastic, and everybody should take this train. It's the Borders Railway. 
the new single track which goes down from Edinburgh to towards Gala Shields. It's a wonderful journey. And I, I keep thinking that, you know, there are places which could be completely revived where if we just had the track back and it would stop the overcrowding in towns and it would actually reinvigorate some of the country towns as well. And some of the areas have not been built over and these dreadful beaching cuts that everybody said, oh, it's going to be, you know, the car's the thing. And it proved to be so wrong. And I think a lot more of them could be reversed. I mean, I know it would cost a lot of money, but it would certainly reinvigorate communities, particularly in the northeast of England. Now, I know you've travelled extensively around Scotland and my great travel shame is that I've only been to Edinburgh and Glasgow because whenever I get the opportunity to go away and now I'm more limited because I've got kids of school age, I just go somewhere warm and I feel so so ashamed that I haven't been to all, to the highlands or the islands, to all those beautiful places. Yeah. What, I know you go a lot to the Arran. Isle of Arran, don't yes, you? Yes, I do. And, and the thing about Arran is it's so easy. And now that's actually a very easy journey for anyone because if you actually were on the sleeper, from London to Glasgow, what you would do is hop across a platform, get on the train that goes down to Ardrossan, which is only 40 minutes away, and then get the 45-minute boat to Arran. So, you know, you don't even need to take a car to Arran. And I think the Scottish islands and indeed the highlands are a place of just such momentous beauty that train travel can take you there. And the other thing about that, of course, is that if you think about it, you can get the sleeper to Inverness from London or the sleeper to Fort William, and you can get onto the train to Inverness at Sehap Estate, have your dinner, go up, arrive in Inverness, hire a car if you want, spend a couple of days and come back down in the train. So you're missing out two nights in a hotel by doing your, your sleeping pattern as part of your journey. And so I think I encourage you because actually, if there's one thing your children will adore their age, which is six and three, it's traveling overnight in the train because you can do adjoining doors with the children. So actually what you can have is a kind of family journey north. Oh, I, I really, I really need to do it. But you know, you know what it's like when suddenly you, you've got a school to think of and my family live in Spain, but it must have been really hard for you juggling, yeah. you know, that life with small children coming down to London, yeah. living in Glasgow. It was, but that's our choice and I don't regret it for a minute. And Caitlin is now actually uh, living in London at the moment. Uh, my son James lives in New York. So we are kind of a peripatetic family. And, you know, I used to go to Spain a lot, I used to go to Mallorca a lot, we had a house in the hills. But if I'm going to spend time off now, you know, I will go uh, to New York. And again, on the train business, you know, for uh, Thanksgiving, I'm going to be in Providence, Rhode Island. We will take the Amtrak from New York. I love the Amtrak. And I love the train that goes between New York and Washington. I mean, I love trains. Tell me about your time in New York. What's your favourite bit? Always when I go to New York, because James was at university there, and therefore... It was lovely to be able to host his friends. So I don't stay in hotels. I usually try and get an apartment. And it'll either be in the East Village or Gramercy, West Village or Greenwich Village. And so therefore I kind of establish myself for three or four or five days. I, you know, I go to the grocery store so I can make meals for him. That's what I did when it was university. And now that he's actually living in Brooklyn, I still quite like living in the East Village, the West Village. So I will take an apartment so that he will come and stay with me and we'll cook and have people around. It's a great city. And I love that you get out of the city as well. I've done a lot of exploring around New York State and not many people do. Oh, New York State is wonderful. What people would think about when they're going out of New York is they think, oh, we'll go to the Hamptons. You know, that's the South Fork of Long Island which is very shishi and everything else, but actually the place to go is the North Fork. Because the North Fork, where the old potato farms were, um, are now the winery territory. We took a house there for a month near Greenport, which is a great little town. And James and I travelled up again for a few days and went to Shelter Island, which is between the North Fork and the South Fork. And it's a great old hotel there called the Check It Hotel. We stayed there for a couple of nights and it's fantastic. Describe it to me. It is a lovely wooden old sort of colonial hotel, it looks like, as, and lots of shiplap and... 
great food, very low key, but actually it's actually just been bought by the guys who own West Elm. And so it's very West Elm looking inside. But, you know, it's a very local area, lovely beaches. It's a great place called Sunset Beach, I think it's called, with great food. And so I would really recommend that. I mean, obviously, people like to go to the South Fork, but actually, I love the North Fork and I love Shelter Island. You talked about going there for a month, which is wonderful. And one of the things in my research, you know, in advance of coming here today, was I noticed you, you're talking a lot about work-life balance. And I saw your wonderful TED talk about how we should work a four-day week, which I'm all for working less. That's, that's why I'm a freelancer. But tell me, your, tell me your thoughts on that. I think things are escalating so quickly in this regard that we are going to be in the next 20 years losing a third of our jobs to automation at least. There are going to be fewer jobs to go around. We're going to have to live longer and look after ourselves better because pensions won't be around. We're also going to have to look after family more. So my feeling is that in the end, if we all did perhaps a 32-hour week, we train more apprentices, we have more people getting more job satisfaction, doing less work, that we share it around, that we actually really, really rethink about work-life balance. We're going to have to stay sharper longer. So we should read more, we should do more together, we should do more exercise. And this, I think, is coming upon us. And it's not just going to be for service jobs and so forth. It's going to be, you know, there's no reason why children can't have different teachers. You know, my view is that there should be a day of school which is really given over to creativity, sport and so forth with different kinds of teachers. So teachers too will do 32-hour weeks. Nurses are, you know, they're so stressed out at the NHS. They will do 32-hour weeks. We'll train more people. More people will use their brains, but they will have a different way of working. It just feels such a shame the way people are conditioned to have this culture <gasps> of presenteeism and yeah. to do these long hours. And I think, and, and it's not just me that thinks this, you think this as well, but research has shown that actually productivity zooms ahead when you're Yeah, our you're productivity doing is really poor in this country. Hours. And in Germany, where there is a 32-hour week for many people, productivity is much higher. And they have a better quality And in Scandinavia of life. as well. Because you get to the end of your life and you think, well, actually, the important thing is just is spending time with family and enjoying and yourself and, and travel. And nurturing, <laughs> and nurturing yourself and your family. And people would have more. I mean, travel isn't important to everyone, but, you know, travel in your own country, travel in your own city, you know, exploring, having that time out is a, is a major part of life. I am firmly of the belief that you should travel in your own place. I certainly think that about Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales. Not so much Wales, haven't travelled so much Wales, have travelled in Ireland. I can actually visualise Scotland. And I think that, I'll tell you why I think that's so important. is because, you know, we're all trained now to use iPhones for, and Google Maps and everything else. But actually, I love looking at a map. I have OS maps and I like to study them because I like to know where I am. So that if I go down that street, or onto that road, and I'm maybe heading to Dumfries and there's a roadblock, I know how to get there. Nowadays, I worry terribly that we're kind of micro, you know, and rather than really imagining where you are in the country, look the topography, you know, where the rivers run. You know, we have to know our own space. Yeah, it's a shame. Map reading was such fun. Um, and yeah, and a lot of people don't even it. map read now. Yeah. People don't map read, don't, people have a compass and go, well, actually, that is north. So I had read a beautiful story about, talking about the Isle of Arran, which we were previously, about how you were inspired to write a novel after spending a very wet month yes. in Arran. Yes. Or on Arran, I suppose, yeah. I should say. And, I mean, that is the thing about this country. I do love travelling around the UK as a whole, but the weather, you know, 
is unpredictable and is a bit of a pain. But tell me about this. Well, month I mean, the, the thing is, I, this summer has been phenomenal oh, in Ireland. I mean, I was there three weeks ago and it was Mediterranean. And there is this Gulf Stream weather in Ireland, which is which kind of adds, ramps up. When we get good weather, it kind of ramps up. This happened to be a month where I'd taken a house with the kids. And there were too many families and too small a house in wet weather. So we were always in the car with the kids going to the swimming pool. And I remember my husband saying, you know, I really, I know you want to have a place here and, you know, we'd be very lucky and very privileged to do so. But on the other hand, look at the weather. If you want somewhere, we're going to have to go abroad. And I thought, oh God, okay. Oh, that's not tough. I mean, I don't mean it, it like that. Twist that's a terrible arm. thing to say, twist my arm. And actually we got, we, we went to the hills of New York and we had a lovely old place which really dated back to Arab times in the 10th century and it was phenomenal. But I've always hankered after Aaron. I thought, well, if I can't actually have a place here, I want to make it my own through, through a novel. So I wrote a novel set on Aaron and the story really spirals from a woman putting a note through the door of an older woman saying, if you ever sell your house, could you consider me? And so everything came from that. And that came from the original idea, what it was actually to do with a kind of family idea as well. But the original idea of if I can't be on Aaron, I want to visualise it all the time. Describe Aaron to me. Well, Aaron is the most beautiful island, which is very lush and green, but has the most extraordinary sub Monroe called Goat Fell. And it's a whole mountain range. As you approach the ferry terminal in Brodick across the Firth of Clyde, Aaron just is laid out in front of you. And you see a beautiful red sandstone castle, Brodick Castle. You see the hills. You see the little town, I suppose you would call it, Brodick. And then you three miles over the hill, you get to Lash, which is my favourite place, which you look out over Holy Isle, which is this lovely conical island. And that has been bought by the Buddhists about 15 years ago, and people go and retreat there. But my mother, uh, and indeed my father, but my mother and father both were there as teenagers, my mother was there during the war when the Bay of Lamlash was boomed at both sides to stop German U-boats coming in. And there were lots of army exercises. The commandos were there. And actually, I talk about that in my novel. And so even despite the war, it was a place that very much suffered during the war as well, like lots of other places did, but actually carried on during the war, being a place, a holiday destination. You could hear the Clyde Bank Blitz going on from Aaron as well. There were, you know, not until I started researching my book did I know that more than 40 warplanes, you know, came down in the mountains on Aaron because they were coming down from Canada, coming into land at Ayr, which is only like six miles down across on the mainland. And so they were coming down over the mountain range and at night and coming down too low and actually crashed. So there's lots of war graves now, so it's a place, a very poignant place as well. It's interesting that you didn't know that. I think I didn't know that, that at all. People don't talk about it. Is it one of those parts of the world that I just don't, don't think? I think they don't. A lot of people, I'm sure, people on Aaron do know that. But I think a, a lot, for me, it was a real revelation that so many planes had come down. So you know, there are Canadian airmen, American airmen, and actually a couple of Germans uh, and British airmen and women uh, have war graves on Aaron. Scotland as a whole is your home, but. Do you think that I'm from the Wirral from, and, and you know have a big connection with Liverpool and do you think that Scottish people like the Scousers have even more of affinity with their home turf or almost or is it just because I meet the ones that aren't from there um, that aren't there at the time, uh, that the time. Away, yeah. <clears throat> I mean they say there's nothing you know there's no one so Scottish as people that don't live in Scotland and I'm sure that's the case of all nationalities if you imagine all the diaspora in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia, who want to keep that connection home. And that's another very big part of my life was that, you know, people that I knew, my great aunts and so forth, who I never met, who went to Australia, went to South Africa, who did emigrate for work. So I do think there's like, I, I do, I'm very proud of where I come from. 
and I love it, and I and I I love the place of it, and I think no matter what, you know, if you talk to people that come from the East End of London, they love the East End, they feel very much at home. I think the sense of place is terribly important to me, uh, and it always has been, and it's partly because as a child, you know, I didn't go abroad till I was uh, fifteen on a school cruise. We had holidays in Scotland or Ireland. It was where Dad could fish and Mum could play golf. And, you know, so I know that I know my country. Let's talk a little bit about, about Mallorca, because Mallorca is one of these places that people who haven't been there or maybe haven't been there for a long time or have been there and just stayed in the very touristy places have a completely false view of what Mallorca might be like, don't they? Mallorca is beautiful and people think it's this overrun touristy place and there's about one or two areas that might be like that. And actually, they're even quite nice. But the island is just one of the most stunning islands. People don't realise that a lot of Mallorca is also protected because it's a place of natural beauty and UNESCO sites and so forth. And the Tramontana Mountains are wonderful. And we lived at the base of the Tramontana Mountains in a little town called Alaro, which is a fantastic town. We don't, we're not there now simply because with the children growing up, we weren't going there as much. And obviously, as I said, with James being in America, if I'm going like, to take a lot of time off, I'm going to be there. But what I loved was that, you know, people in the village were very friendly, but they're quite reserved. We would use the market, but, you know, for example, we would be there at New Year. You would get your suckling pig, you would take it along to the best baker, who are our friends, who have got the oldest wooden oven, and then you would put it in after the bread was out, and then you would get your suckling pig back at the end of the day. And so I learned to cook, and I loved uh, Mallorcan cooking, and I went to Santa Catarina Market in Palma. I would go and get my ground almonds from the factory shop in Conseil. Because I adore cooking so much, I found, you know, you'd get wild asparagus. The friends that I made there would show me how they cook. And so for me, being in Mallorca, again, was it, it was a great place for my kind of culinary interest. And seasonal cooking is very important there. And the fact that, you know, I did go to market every day, no matter where, there was always a market on somewhere. It would be rarely in the supermarket. I would just cook and eat a different way. I've been to a few of the towns in the centre of Mallorca, like Soyer and Dea. Yes. And very beautiful places. I looked up Aloro, is it? Aloro, yes. Aloro. Aloro. I haven't been there, but I, I noticed that it's famous for some shoes. Like, some you boot, know, boot it's boots. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, it used to be a place of many, many shoe factories. And now there is one great, Tony Morrow has the most fantastic factory that makes cowboy boots on the edge of town. I'm a cowboy boot fan. I've got my ankle Yeah, my red ones are on. in there. And what's great is that you get them made for you. Oh, so the ones I have through there each actually have my initials on them. And he sells, sends cowboy boots all over the world. They are the best cowboy boots. He sends them to Israel, to South America. To, it, and the styles and the fabrics and the workmanship and the craftsmanship. And you can look through at the factory and you can see people making cowboy boots and that's that is if you ever go to Mallorca you have to go to that cowboy boot factory I feel like I need to there's not no one on the podcast so far has actually made me want to go to a place for a shop or a boot maker but I, I would actually I'm desperate for some new cowboy boots like well I will show you mine and died in after 20 years I have I'm about desperate. four or five pairs oh, I'm afraid so and I will get more from him because he's now got my last because you see I've had my feet done so I can actually just say I want that pair but I'll go over and see him anyway because otherwise they take a long time to break in as well don't they, they take time to break in but actually is it, is it, when you get them made for your foot, 
there's nothing better. You're quite renowned for being quite a snazzy dresser. Well, I like clothes. Yeah. I have to admit. You know, people feel that there's something to apologise for that, but there's no. I think you can be a, a sensible, you know, a grown up and still like. Yeah, absolutely. Like nice I clothes, mean, just just because you like clothes doesn't mean you don't actually like you know history or exactly. literature or oh, yeah. you know, politics or whatever. Just because it's more frivolous, and in a way, it's not frivolous. It's it's. It's important it, because you know if you don't feel good at what you're wearing, what I always say about Newsnight is, I've got to feel good about what I'm wearing so I can forget about it because there's nothing worse than you know footering around and very funny actually I remember I was wearing a, what I thought was a rather lovely Vivian Westwood skirt which had a hitch at the side and this lovely woman who was on sound messaged down to the floor manager going tell Kirsty her skirt's tucked <laughs> inside her pants I'm going no it's not it's the style <laughs> do you think all the viewers thinking she's got a skirt in her knickers probably someone should, someone should tell her <gasps> let's do some light and shade for my last couple of questions where have you felt most afraid when you've travelled? Have you ever, ever felt in jeopardy? Ah, let me think about that. Have I felt in jeopardy? I think that I have been pretty lucky. I travelled all the way through the accession states in 2002, making films from uh, Slovenia all the way to Estonia. And I think I felt pretty safe. I, I felt I was in unknown territory. I'm quite mindful of where I am. And I don't think I have felt in jeopardy. Do you know, I think that's a really interesting question. And it's not to say that I wouldn't, and I wouldn't particularly go to places where I would feel unsafe just for the sake of the thrill of it. My daughter had a terrible experience in Barcelona about three weeks ago, which I'm horrified about because I love Barcelona. But you know, she had a violent mugging. And I think you can be in the places where you think you're safest and there'll be somebody that's going to make you feel unsafe. Or you're going to be in the unsafest places and somebody is going to be lovely and make you feel safe. So I think it's just being very aware of your surroundings. Have you been anywhere that's meant you, that, where you feel completely, that feels completely foreign in a way? Moscow probably. You know, I felt quite uncertain in Moscow. I was there a long time ago. I was making a programme, an educational programme. And again, I think it's just because, you know, you have these, I was a child of the Cold War. You know, you have perestroika, then you have glasnost and everything, you think everything's going to be fine. But it's just about keeping your wits about you. And, you know, it's a shame to have to do that. I did read, uh, no, someone said, when I said I was going to interview you, someone said, oh, I loved her series on Eastern Europe, but I couldn't find anything about that online. What was that? It was a series of programmes, one um, the cultural programmes that were on BBC Four, going Slovenia, Slovakia. I was in architecture, food, history, culture, all the way from Latvia, Lithuania, all the way up. And I, it was it was such a privilege to be able to do it and find amazing things. Like, you know, for example, the Movia wines in Slovenia are fantastic. And hearing about, you know, families who actually had originally had vineyards and then had been separated by, you know, a fence that they just could not actually, you know, from Italy to Slovenia, whatever, that they couldn't see each other's families, you know, for all those years, and how wonderful, how joyous it is. What was really striking for me, though, going particularly to Estonia, going to the Baltics, was how desperate they were to get into, you know, to be in NATO, to be in Europe, because they were so scared of invasion again. And I was just horrified. I thought, you can't be serious. And now when you think about it, you know, Tallinn, Estonia had one of their earliest cyber strikes. There's all this talk about, you know, a build-up on the borders, um, you know, with, Soviet, with Russian uh, troops. I think, this is such a short, is this going to be a short honeymoon or are they safe? You want them to be safe. It's so comparatively recent, the history. Yes, the, the completely. On the lighter side, where have you felt most relaxed, most at home? That's not in Scotland. I think Mallorca is the place where I feel most relaxed. One of my favourite things to do in Mallorca is really to get up very early in the morning, take a cup of coffee, sit outside and just listen. You know, we're very lucky because there were persimmon trees, there were figs, orange trees and so forth, a lot of wildlife about, a lot of birds. And just have that still in the morning and have that warmth, that morning warmth is very relaxing.
I know you're not even close to retiring. In fact, you might very well get a different job soon. I don't know how that's going. Who knows? <laughs> Do you know how it's going? I know nothing. I genuinely am not, I'm genuinely, I'm not bullshitting. I know nothing at the moment. The thing is, I adore news night, so that's fine. And I adore doing other things. And my new novel is going to be published next June, you know, I hope. And so there's a lot going on, but it would be a lovely thing to do. It would be a great thing to have you fronting that programme, such a, a great programme. Tell me quickly about the novel, what's that about? My novel is going to be called The Striding Arch, and the reason it's going to be called The Striding Arch is because if everybody looks up Andy Goldsworthy's wonderful sculpture, they will see the series The Striding Arches, and what it is is beautiful red sandstone arches, and they're all about leaving, emigrating. The first one was sort of strides out of a, an old barn in, near Monny Ive in Dumfrieshire where a family was, you know, in the clearances, they were cleared and they went to Canada, I think. Then what he's done is he's placed these arches in upstate New York, in Australia and New Zealand. And it's all about the act of going. And that's important in my book as well. And so there's a scene set at the Striding Arch near Monny Ive. And I really urge you all to go there, it's beautiful. And I asked Andy Goldsworth if he'd mind if I called my novel that, and he said not at all. I don't know where I read about this recently, but it, you could just visualise the people leaving on the boat and what the, the fear and the sadness yeah. and trepidation and, and possibly elation that they must have felt. All those conflicted emotions must have been just yeah. shocking, setting off to the new world. And the new world, and of course, you know, Scotland was cleared massively, so. My last question is always about music, because to me, music and travel go hand in hand, and you have more time to, to listen to music, and it evokes some beautiful memories sometimes. So if you could choose one song from your travels that reminded you of a special time or place of travel, what would that song be? There are so many because I love music so much. But I would probably say traveling in an open top car with James from New York up to Shelter Island, blasting the killers. Once you, uh, we got out of New York and headed to uh, towards Shelter Island, once we got out of the city, the roof is down, music's blasting, and the killers, and you know you're on holiday. Thank you so much, Kirsty, and oh, how I long too to be speeding along in a convertible, blasting out the killers and heading somewhere fabulous. We'll be back here next week for more life stories through travel. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.